Hey guys, Justin Simmons here with The Leader's Playbook. Wanted to tell you about a really exciting promotional giveaway uh, brought to you by our sponsors at My Labs Direct. Uh, this week, they're going to be offering a free MacBook Air. So here's how this works. You go to their website at mylabsdirect.com to purchase a self-collection blood test. So you go to their website, pick any test on the store. Even better, they're gonna give you 10% off of any test that you purchase. So by putting in the promo code, this is important, promo code APPLE10, when you check out, you'll be entered to win the MacBook Pro and you'll get 10% off of your test kit. So this test kit will be mailed to your home. You can self-collect your own blood test anytime, anywhere, and then ship it back to My Labs Direct through free prepaid shipping right back to the lab. They'll send you the results to your dashboard and you're off to the races. Remember, put in the promo code APPLE10 to, to earn a chance to win a free MacBook Air. We're going to run this promotion for the first 25 people that sign up and purchase a kit on the website at mylabsdirect.com. Great leaders are always learning. Tune in each week as we dig deep into the minds of America's top leaders and uncover their secrets for success and the pivotal moments that got them there. If you are looking for executive coaching that will drive you and your team to the winning goal line, this is the podcast for you. Hey guys, welcome to the Leader's Playbook. Uh, super exciting guest on today, Chris Gay, CEO of Every Health. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining. Uh, oh, thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, well, tell us a little bit about Every Health. Well, sure. Every Health is a new business insurer. So we serve mid-sized companies and we provide more effective medical care that costs 20% less. Wow. We're serving any company here in the state of Texas. So is it, it's oriented more towards companies? Can, can an individual come in and buy a policy with you guys or? I wish we could help all the individuals out there, but the way the U.S. regulations are written, we can only help companies with more than 51 employees in the okay. state of Texas. So we're, we're what's called fully insured group insurance. Interesting. So it's 20% less. What are some of the differentiators that um, you know, people need to know about this versus you know, a traditional insurance carrier? Well, it's really reimagined across the, the whole spectrum of the healthcare experience. But uh, the first thing I typically get asked is how could you possibly lower costs, right? Yeah. It, it's impossible. Uh, we do that basically through software automation. We've automated everything you possibly can. Mm -hmm. And then we went out and directly contract and built our own medical network with doctors and hospitals and labs. Uh, and then in addition, we use digital medicine wherever possible. We encourage on-demand digital medicine. And between those three things, we save roughly 30 points of margin. Mm -hmm. And the client, our the employer group we work with, typically gets 10 to 20 points of that. And the rest allows us to run a company that's got happy employees and everyone gets better benefits. I mean, I cruised around on the website a little bit, and there's a lot of discussion about uh, deductibles and kind mm -hmm. of what's going on there. It helped me kind of understand that, or our viewers, viewers to understand the deductible challenges and how you sure. guys are addressing that at every... Yeah, well, deductibles are really a historical artifact of national policy. So with rising healthcare costs, uh, healthcare in the United States has grown from about 5% of U.S. GDP in 1960 uh, to roughly almost 15%. Mm -hmm. So that's not good. Uh, and one of the ways companies and individuals have had to cope with that is by cutting back benefits. That's it. All right, so they lower the cost by cutting the benefits and a common tool that's arise is deductibles. Uh, deductibles, unfortunately, they'll become risk deferment. It's not risk management. So if you get injured, your knee doesn't feel good, uh, but you haven't met your deductible that year, your temptation is to kind of put off uh, getting seen and getting taken care of. Mm -hmm. uh, and what happens, it becomes worse. And instead of maybe a strain, now it becomes a tear. 
yeah. because you keep using it incorrectly. And then that tear uh, then requires surgery. And so instead of a $200 to $500 site visit, it becomes a five to $8,000 surgery and you're off of work for six weeks. That's an example of how deductibles can create cascading negative outcomes for Makes, you. Because so, people are just holding off because they you want to avoid this big yeah. out of pocket. It's natural human behavior. Yeah. Um, so at every, we don't have deductibles. We got rid of them. There's no deductibles, no co-pays. And that's you, I bas basically through the savings and how, how do you do that? That's crazy. Yeah, well, um, as the insurer, we could control everything. It's kind of a walled garden. So we can control all the product design. We get to control all of the technology experience and we get to control all the relationship with the providers and, and the, the digital medicine. And so between all those things, we're just able to save so much in terms of margin uh, that we're able to give a much richer benefit plan design, no deductibles, no co-pays, and free digital medicine while still saving 20%. And it's just back to create lots of savings and efficiencies and share a lot of that goodness with the employer group and their, their employees. Well, I've had, you know, an opportunity to get to know you over this last, you know, several months and um, knowing your character, it's, it's about that. It's about the person and uh, the interaction there. So I think that's something you are bringing uh, philosophically to your company is just the high touch uh, consideration towards the client. How do you guys accomplish that uh, yeah. as you grow? Good question. So uh, we've all experienced terrible health insurance and terrible health care. That's the status quo. And so we want to turn that on its end, mm -hmm. make it high touch. Um, as much as I love software, we can automate as many things as possible. That's great for efficiency. But when you want help, you want a human on the other end of the line. Right. So we also employ a staff of nurses that act as care coordinators. So every one of our members gets high touch service. And there's someone there to be an expert in healthcare. So the member doesn't have to be an expert. Mm -hmm. We're there to help you. So someone you know, knows what they're doing and is there. How are you guys handling these? Uh, as we hear, even in, in my labs direct, we hear about the challenges with uh, you know employees and finding good quality uh, folks. How do you guys uh, kind of mitigate those challenges as you grow? Yeah, for us, um, we were we started launching into market during COVID, mm -hmm. uh, and so we were effectively forced to go remote. Mm -hmm. We went full remote. Uh, that had blessings and 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 challenges with it. One of the blessings was it made it easier for us to hire. Mm -hmm. So we were struggling to hire fast enough to meet our growth demands. And when we went 100% remote, we A-B tested the same job listings. We got 100 times the response. Uh, and literally by putting 100% remote in the job title uh, on the, the various boards we would use, we use LinkedIn heavily. Okay. Uh, that response rate made all the difference. Really? So we, we were able to increase the top of the funnel by 100x, and that resulted in highly qualified candidates, and we were able to scale. Because of the virtual side of things, it wasn't a, a yeah. huge consideration. Um, when you look at your executive team and the people around you, uh, your leadership, uh, what's your philosophy there? Can you hire remote into those roles or is that something that you would prefer to have in office with you? Yeah, well, I like spending day-to-day -day time with people. Mm -hmm. um, what we do requires a lot of face time, yeah. a lot of training and a lot of collaboration. However, uh, again, we went 100% remote. Yeah. So the challenge became how do you build into each other uh, and still do that? We have to create a lot of intentional time. Yeah. Uh, we, the executive team just has a quick little tag meeting every day and then we follow up inside bars um, every day. Um, but we, recruit, we did recruit and hire almost our entire executive team remotely. Wow. Well, I've met your CFO, Mark. He's in New York. Yeah. So there's an example, right? Yeah. Our, our chief medical officer is in Kentucky. Um, you know, our head of, 
We've got people as well, um, senior staff, executive staff in Connecticut, uh, Texas, and then we've got employees obviously all over the country. So right now, Every is serving the Texas market. Are you guys mm -hmm. national yet, or what's the plan to grow and expand the, the business? Yeah, absolutely. We'd like to be national. Mm -hmm. um, we'll grow as, when we can, prudently take this all national. Mm -hmm. We proved it out here in Dallas-Fort Worth, and now we're expanding across the whole state of Texas. So we're serving San Antonio, Austin, Houston, and all the major markets of Texas now. So that's got to, I mean, be a big task for business development, people to go into new yeah. markets and align relationships with systems and mm -hmm. providers and uh, no small feat, but I know you could probably handle that. So Yeah, well, thankfully, I've got great people we work with in addition to a small army of consultants. So when we build out a new market, we have to build out distribution partners. Mm -hmm. So we have to go out and make friends and build trust and, and to create channel partners like major brokerage houses. And we also have to build out hospital and doctor and laboratory and pharmacy relationships. And so we... When we say we're ready to serve someplace, it typically means we've been working on that for six months to 18 months in advance yeah. to prep the ground and make sure we've got all of the facilities and agreements in place that we can serve people with excellence. Don't sell what you don't have, basically, right? So. It's a crazy idea. You'd like yeah. to actually make sure <laughs> you can buy it. Yeah. <laughs> meet people's expectations. We try to exceed them. So, yeah, we're statewide in Texas now. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, so tell me a little bit about the personal side. You have, you know, kids and you live here in Dallas. Tell me a little bit about the home life and, and what you have going on there. Sure. Uh, married 25 years, three children, uh, 15, 13, and 10. Uh, lived here in Dallas uh, for 25 years. Base of operations, although I've worked all over. Um, and we, we live over by White Rock Lake nice. where, where there's trees and nothing particularly special. Our kids go to public schools. Oh, that's, there's nothing wrong with that, right? No, well, we're very pleased with Dallas Independent School District has some fantastic magnet schools. Mm -hmm. And um, we have sent our children to private school in the past, but we're really fortunate our children are in great schools at DISD right now. So um, tell us a little bit about the background and how you came to be the CEO of Every Health and, you know, from college and to now. Like, yeah. how, did, how, did this, how did this take place, Chris? Oh, <laughs> uh, I joke with my wife that you don't become an entrepreneur if you're normal. Mm -hmm. There has to be something True. slightly wrong with you oh, yeah. uh, because you have a higher tolerance for risk and you're willing to do things that um, aren't safe. Mm -hmm. um, but I came out of school and uh, I moved here to Dallas, Texas because uh, we were married in college. And I had a good job working for uh, uh, Goldman Sachs. So I moved up here. And then uh, two weeks into that job, I hated living here and uh, I hated wearing a three-piece suit. <laughs> and I went to my boss and said, I quit. <laughs> I'd like to quit, sir. Yeah. And, and I'll return the whole signing bonus. Like, um, I, like I, this has been a bad fit. And he was really sweet. Um, and he, he said, well, I hear you. Why don't you go think about it for the weekend and come back and we'll have coffee on Monday. And over the weekend, my dad told me I wasn't allowed to quit until I had another job lined up and reminded me of my responsibilities. And of course, as a new college grad, I couldn't line up another job. So one thing led to another. I've been in Dallas a long time. Mm -hmm. I went over to the tech world. Uh, and then about uh, 12 years ago, I uh, started a company that was in the auto insurance space because we ran into a problem. We were taking some immigrants uh, looking for jobs. We were applying for jobs, and I was the driver, and we got hit by someone, and that led to an auto insurance experience that was extremely frustrating. And out of that, we realized, like, this isn't right. Mm -hmm. So we started a whole new insurance to try to bring fairness and transparency to the marketplace. And uh, our big innovation there was that we're the reason you see drive less, pay less ads everywhere. Yeah. So we invented per mile auto insurance. 
And I'm particularly proud that it benefited people that were uh, lower income households and women especially. Mm -hmm. We lowered premiums like 50%. So it was my first experience being CEO. Yeah. Um, that was kind of, it was a lot, it was a wild ride. It was a lot of fun. Per mile auto insurance, explain that real quickly. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> auto insurance in, in, you know, before we came along in the United States, it was always priced per year or per six months or per 30 days. It's time-based exposure. Uh, that makes a lot of sense for something like uh, hail damage, mm -hmm. right? Coverage, covering for that peril, because that's seasonal based on time. It doesn't make any sense for liability coverage um, because that is a direct correlation with miles driven. You can't get into an accident when your car's in park. Right. In general, mm -hmm. right? So uh, your exposure, if you drive 100 miles versus 200 miles, your exposure to risk and liability is double at the 200 miles than the 100 miles. And so the entire industry was mispricing auto insurance. Gigantic yeah. industry. Half of us were subsidizing the other half. Right. And disproportionately, that half that was doing the subsidizing and overpaying tended to be lower income households and women. And so we got... We had the opportunity to rectify some of that. And now the entire industry is kind of adopting that model, and that's why you're seeing all these ads you know, 15 years later. And all because you didn't want to wear a suit, man. It, that you started me on the path. You should have bought a purple suit, see? Yeah. And Dude, then... I had like a, back then, Joseph Banks <laughs> was the thing. And uh, they'd do like these two-for-one sales. <laughs> and so, but what you didn't know is when you went in, you know, it was a two-for-one sale because they're getting rid of the winter inventory. <laughs> yeah, but we still had to wear suits at Goldman even when it was summertime. So I'm loaded up on this wintertime three-piece suit. Like I look like I walked out of like an Oliver Twist novel. <laughs> and, and, three-piece. Oh, dude, you would sweat so much in the summer. Cool, Just getting Chris. from the, the, the garage to the office building, you would sweat enough. You'd drench your shirt. Um, yeah, I did not have a, I had zero fashion sense. And That's okay. When you get, when you buy five suits for $350, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're probably wearing wool in the summertime and or one pant leg shorter than the other, maybe. I mean, yeah. a lot of those challenges. But it worked out. So um, <laughs> it, I guess in some ways it did kind of set me on the path to yeah. being an entrepreneur. Um, but that's kind of how it started. Yeah. So you talked about risk, and that is a big thing, I think, for all entrepreneurs and how they assess risk. Mm -hmm. Explain to me, in your mind, how do you assess, uh, assess risk? Yeah. Uh, first off, for anyone listening out there, if you're an entrepreneur, um, you probably have a, you probably underestimate risk, flat out. Um, and you need to realize that. Uh, so all of your listeners need to realize you have a predisposition as an entrepreneur to underestimate risk. Mm -hmm. And the people that impacts the most are your family and your children mm -hmm. and your business partners. Um, so when you're looking at risk, um, how you assess it from a startup perspective, I'm not talking insurance risk, but a startup perspective, um, you, the biggest one is your opportunity costs. So you know, what could you do if you didn't do this entrepreneurial thing? Right. Like, what's life look like for your, your family and your kids and yourself uh, if you just stay the course or you got a different job or maybe you stayed in the same industry and you, and, and you stayed in the same company, but you just requested a, a move to a different location. Those are all things you can do that might address your personal preferences and your needs Yeah. Um, for some entrepreneurial drive. Start a hobby. But if all the, none of those things are going to meet your needs and you really feel you've got to go new, do a new thing, um, the first one you need to think about is time risk. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the, again, outside of all the family risk. The next one you've got to think about um, is financing risk. Um, and the third thing you have to think about is market risk. Um, so 
is the market really going to work with what you have? And even if they like what you have, uh, will the competitive response uh, result in a diminished return on investment and less traction? Mm -hmm. So as an entrepreneur, you have to get to the point of what they call product market fit. Mm -hmm. You're dead on arrival until you have a product or service that people will buy that has a clear return on investment. Uh, and that return on investment exceeds the customer acquisition cost. Yeah. Um, until you get there, you don't have a business. Yeah. You may need to get there with external funding. You may be able to get there with grants. You may be able to get there by cutting pilot deals and getting your customers to pay you for betas and things like that, like a consulting model. Those are all valid ways. But how long is it going to take you is the time risk. Because mm -hmm. if you think it's going to take you six months, but it takes you 24 months because the sales cycle for enterprise sales is long, congratulations, you raised far too little capital or you had too little money saved up to actually achieve your goals and you set yourself up for failure. Uh, the next one you've really got to think about is obviously the fit with the customer mm -hmm. and the competitive issues. Um, that's where a lot of them fall down because they have a great idea and that idea in the abstract is fantastic and then it beats the reality of the market and you realize, ooh, I have to tweak this. Yeah. You know, I, I think I know what the customer wants. I've read the data, yeah. but I need to make an adjustment and that gets back to our time risk. To make that adjustment, you have to redeploy your service, redeploy your product. You might have to do some re-engineering. You have to re-message it, rebrand it, get it back out there, try to get traction. And so we come back to time risk. Um, that's just in general how we think about it. So who, who, when you're building that team, I mean, who do you think is most imperative when you go out to create a startup, for example? Because you're talking about kind of like market analysis and really understanding industry. Certainly timing plays a factor in all of that. but. Who do you want on that team to help you assess that risk and to assess the market? And Sure. Um, well, the best thing, it doesn't have to be a big team. This doesn't have to be like a formal MBA effort. Um, it can just be one person. It can be you and one other person, you know, a, a few people. You have to have a willingness to be flexible and listen. So the, the, the single best thing an entrepreneur, or even if, you know, even if you're not an entrepreneur, you're leading an innovation effort inside of a large corporate entity, which is what I used to help with. The number one thing is be willing to listen. Mm -hmm. So go talk to people and ask them lots of questions. Don't just show up to ask them the questions that you wanted to about your product, because right. you think you already know the answer. You're, you're steering the witness, as they would say. Go and ask lots of open-ended questions. What do you like? What do you don't like? Mm -hmm. What works? What doesn't work? What do you like about your competitors? What do you not like about them? What are they, you know, ask lots of questions and just listen. And when you do that across a lot of um, uh, different hierarchies, not just competitors, not just people who are friendly, talk to customers, potential customers, talk to, if there's distributors in that market, talk to them. The distributors and brokers have a very wide view of what works and doesn't work. And even when great products are out there, sometimes people aren't willing to adapt them or adopt them. So talk to them all. Um, that listening effort is probably the single best thing you can do in market research. Um, and it's imperative. You have to do it. One thing that I've experienced, you know, as we built companies is you get to this point in some of them where you're, well, if I just paid a little bit more here, if I just do this little bit of extra effort um, and you kind of get into a perpetual cycle, you're, you're wondering, well, obviously anything marketed effectively can maybe draw some visibility and then sales start churning and then it starts to work. But how do you assess that in your opinion? Like when is enough enough? When do you, when do you call it? When do you continue to push? Sure. Uh, versus throwing good money after bad kind of situation where I think a lot of people get trapped in that. They're trying to make the company go and they're not doing quite enough or maybe it's, it's that tempting, like almost got to keep pushing idea. Yeah. Um, 
Well, in economics, we call it the sunk cost fallacy. Right? We get emotionally attached to the money or time we already invested, and basically we're not looking at it clearly. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the best way, um, when, when you're stuck, the single best thing is bring in someone else to look at it with fresh eyes. Get a board member to come in and talk with you. If you've got a board, make sure your board's informed and let them come in. They're not as emotionally or financially invested as you, and they'll look with clear eyes. Uh, bring a friend in that you trust that's got some experience in the space. Just ask them to ride along yeah. and get a fresh take on what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, that is probably the best thing you could do, is just bring someone else in to read the situation clearly, even if they're just hanging out for a day with you. Yeah. Somebody's okay. going to give you objective feedback and cut you straight. It's key. Yeah. It's key. Um, and if you have a, I mean, you've got to be careful on, well, I would just leave it at that. I would just say, try to, if you've got a board member, bring in board members, keep them along, bring a friend, and just get objective feedback. So you, you mentioned a board. And so an early startup company maybe hasn't established that yet, or do you feel it's imperative to have established people on a board before launching into the startup? What's your, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, uh, it's, not, it's not required to form a board, okay? That's a lot of, you can over-engineer something before you need it or over-structure it. Typically, venture-funded startups don't have a formal board until they do their first external round of institutional capital, which mm -hmm. is you know, by default labeled a Series A or Series B. Until then, it's typically just the founders um, populate the board themselves, so it's kind of a feedback loop. Yeah. But what you can do in advance of that, what you can do is seek out advisors. Okay? Um, go to people that are subject matter experts in your industry. Uh, they might be investors as well, mm -hmm. um, but they, they're subject matter experts, and just ask them to spend time with you. You know, people yeah. are generally willing to give you advice For if you'll sure. sit down and if you're polite and, and hey, listen, like you said yeah, before. particularly I, I've never found anyone that won't tell you what you're doing wrong. Right. Hi, can I have a cup of coffee with me? And would you tell me what I'm doing wrong? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a good point. And some of them want it to be formal as a quote board of advisors, but the, it, generally an informal advisory group is very, very helpful in the early stage. Yeah. So um, we've talked about that and I met with you, something that we, you know, try to determine the best time to do this, but raising outside capital. Are you of the mind that you try to bootstrap through operational cash flow, or do you really have to have a plan in place to you know, bring in outside debt or equity? What's your, mm -hmm. what's your thought? Well, it depends upon the industry and it depends upon the business. Mm -hmm. So some businesses, most businesses will never need venture capital, for example. So I spent most of my, my career in the venture capital world on one side or the other. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of businesses, the majority of entrepreneurs out there are small businesses that can be bootstrapped and grown through personal savings, uh, traditional banker loans, and revenue mm -hmm. from customers. And that's a great way to grow a business. It's a fantastic way to grow a business if you can, depending upon your business model. Um, for those that are going after really rapid growth opportunities that require a lot of upfront investment, engineering products, creating new services, large distribution channel, um, you know, establishing a large distribution channel, those are typically better fits for venture capital. Mm -hmm. But you just have to keep in mind like the, the cost of capital on venture is very high. Yeah. Right. So they're expecting a business to grow once it's got product market fit. They expect that business to grow typically, but double in size or value, mm -hmm. double in value mm -hmm. annually. Yeah. So ambitious entrepreneur in a startup starting to see some traction, but wants to really grow and scale could stay the path of bootstrapping and just building itself mm -hmm. upon itself. What do you advise there? Like, when's it time to say, look, let's bring in the capital? Is it all a function of just the ambition and the goals of the, of the team or? 
It is highly a function of what you want as a team. Yeah. And, and it's your company. If you're still in control, it's your company. So it's what you want to do with it. Mm -hmm. There's no really wrong answer. There are preferences and there are trade-offs. The majority of businesses will never need or want venture capital. Yeah. It is uh, a tiny portion of the, the, the national financing market. Um, and the flip side of that is, you know, maybe the question you haven't asked, what's the failure rate? Yeah, I was okay, just about so, to go there. So um, the failure rate of venture businesses is very, very high from idea inception. So for like people that are just at the idea stage, what we call seed stage, mm -hmm. it hasn't found product market fit, the failure rate of those businesses is probably in excess of 95%. Wow. So that's okay as, you know, as long as you can move on to the next thing. Yeah. To your, your early questions, you know yeah. when to call it. Okay, this isn't working. It's time to move on. Um, it's also okay as an investor. On the flip side, as an investor, if you've spread your investments, uh, broad diversification, and eventually you have one winner because you know it's a, a game of one winner can cover a lot of your your losses or or, or, or middling returns on investment. So there's just a trade-off on risk versus reward. Um, the lower risk businesses are ones that are driven by customer cash flow. And so if you can grow your business, in my personal opinion, through customer, customer cash flow, and you don't need VC to grow your business, yeah. use the customer cash flow. Hey guys, we're gonna take a quick ad break. Here's a message from our sponsor, MyLabsDirect. Hey guys, welcome back to the Leaders Playbook here on set with our uh, wonderful guest, Chris Gay from Every Health. I don't know the statistic here, but is a VC backed company, obviously running through seed, more likely to succeed over someone that bootstraps and fails? Is, do you know the stat there? Is I don't know the stats. Um, I, I have no idea. I imagine the National Venture Capital Association, uh, the yeah. NVCA, probably has a stat that uh, your, your, leader, your, your readers and listeners could go take a look at. So, you should uh, know these stats, Chris. When you I'm come sorry. on a leader's playbook, you have to have your stats. I don't know that one. <laughs> um, I can't, you know, just in ballpark, uh, I used to work inside of a venture capital firm and just seed stage ballpark, I would tell you um, one, out of, one out of 20 seed businesses makes it. Mm -hmm. um, series from seed stage to A stage, um, Four out of five will fail. Wow. Ballpark. Um, so, I mean, it's just the, the funnel is very broad at the top and it quickly narrows. And yeah. then once they get past Series A, a company that has a Series A as product market fit, they have something that people want. Yep. At that point, it becomes scaling operations and scaling sales and marketing. Yep. So that really becomes how you develop your human capital and how you develop your relationships with the marketplace and you grow that. Um, it's typically no longer an engineering or design issue. And those going from Series A and growing up have much, much higher success rates. That's awesome. It's been highly de-risked at that point. Yeah. Learning a little bit more about you personally. So, you, you know, I've, again, had uh, opportunities to sit with you. You're a super intelligent guy. Just, it, it's awesome. And so what, in your opinion, you can be a little bit braggadocious here. What, what are some of those nuances about, you know, Chris Gay that make you special? Uh, you're, you're, <laughs> truly, your ability to think through solutions and problems to the point you're a leader of a company. People trust you to make good, heady decisions based and rooted in integrity, knowing your background. That aside, like, what are some of the things that you've identified in your, uh, your abilities as both a leader and just 
your yourself as a person, some of your, your qualities, your traits? Well, I, I, I personally recommend reading. Read voraciously. Mm -hmm. Back to my, my earlier comment about listen to people. Another way you can listen is read what they've already put down. So read voraciously mm -hmm. uh, and read diversely. Mm -hmm. um, talk to as many people as you can. So that, that's been really helpful. Uh, and, but for me also, uh, when you become a leader, the, the challenge there is also a lot of people depend upon you. Mm -hmm. It's not just your own career anymore. It's not just yeah. your job. And it's no longer just your family. Um, you are responsible for community. It can be very stressful. And so I think it's very important that you have uh, routines and habits that help you manage that stress. Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, that's personally exercise. Mm -hmm. Exercise a lot. Um, uh, you've got to make sure you're getting your sleep. I mean, you, you, you're under higher stress just like an athlete, yep. and you need to manage that stress and make sure you're taking care of yourself. Otherwise, you will take it out on people. Mm -hmm. You will make mistakes when you're tired uh, or when you're not controlling your own emotions well. And that has much larger impact when you're managing community than when you're just managing your own personal career. Yeah. Um, so I highly recommend reading. I highly recommend exercise. If exercise isn't your thing, uh, whatever works for you, make sure you get your sleep. Um, those are really important. So I'm going to work backwards here and talk about your athletic career as a competitive swimmer. So we're going to talk about that and then how you've applied some of those principles to your daily routine now and what those daily routines look like today. Sure. So tell us a little bit about that. Um, University of Texas. Yeah, I swam for the University of Texas um, back then. Uh, met my wife there. She was also a swimmer at the University of Texas. But you said she was better than you at swimming. She, yeah, she was better than me. Yeah. What uh, was if the you're listening. What stroke? Uh, she was a breaststroker. So one time she was eighth in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I never wow. ranked I, I, I you, rank that you, high. You were at, uh, what was the, you were in the Olympic... When I was younger, facility, yeah, right? when we were younger, the Olympic, uh, the, the U.S. Olympic Committee has um, basically juvenile development programs. So when they scout talent, the teenagers, they'll start sending you and inviting you to special training camps at the U.S. OTC. So I did that when I was younger. Mm -hmm. I don't know what they call those now, but uh, they used to call those like gold camps and select camps and things like that. Uh, but then you get to the university and universities uh, um, in the United States is a big, big deal. Uh, and then I realized when I was at the University of Texas, everywhere else I'd been, I was the big fish proverbially in the little pond, mm -hmm. you know, you, you think you're hot stuff and you and then you show up at the University of Texas and realize genetically uh, and just in terms of total talent and everything else, like I'm a little fish. So you're telling us you don't have <laughs> webbed fingers is what no, you do. No, okay. I, got, I gotcha. got small hands. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it was a good experience, though, to come to some place where you're working with the best yeah. in the whole country and, um, you know, they operate with just excellence all the time. Yeah. It, it does change your worldview. It, it translates <laughs> into leadership in the next chapter. So It does. So it forces a lot of discipline. So swimmers tend to, back then, uh, and even now, uh, top swimmers probably put in uh, 30 hours of training a week. We would do 20 hours, um, 20 hours of swimming a week. Um, plus you would have, well, NCAA back then had regulations. You had, you were capped at 20. Mm -hmm. uh, but Outside of NCAA season, you know, you do additional work on uh, off-season dry land and things like that. So it wasn't uncommon in the peak of the season, heavy to do 90 to 100,000 meters of swimming in a week. Good Lord. That's 100 kilometers. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, and a whole team has that kind of work ethic. So that kind of work ethic, though, you're basically doing two-a-days for 48 weeks a year. Um, the best athletes are doing that for eight years before they're at the world-class level. Yeah. Um, some of them are 
that work ethic carries through uh, to Heck what yeah. we do. You have delayed gratification. You know you've got to work for years to achieve a long-term outcome. And you know if you just keep pushing through, a lot of times you just outlast your competitors. Right. You outlast the obstacles that come up just through sheer persistence and discipline. That's awesome. So it's one thing swimming will do for you. I would think. It's, uh, it seems pretty grueling. I mean, it's, it is. you have physical demands. That, and <laughs> it looks soft, but you guys deal with a lot of pain and arthritis in the shoulders, I'd assume, and other, other issues, right? It had its challenges, but um, I, I'm encouraging my children to do tennis. Yeah. They haven't listened. Golf. Yeah. <laughs> tennis, if you're listening, children. Um, yeah, tennis, the parents are allowed to drink in the stands. Oh, nice. Yeah. You can't drink in the stands and swimming? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah. Uh, not, I'm not sure you'd want to. I mean, parents and... at a swimming meet, I mean, those things would go for three days. I can't believe my parents ever supported that, you know, is sit on a aluminum bleacher for three days. Oh. No. They may not have been there. You were in the water. You couldn't tell. No. They may have been so our out kids, drinking. So our kids play <laughs> basketball, soccer, volleyball. You know, we've encouraged yeah. almost everything but swimming. Really? Yeah. Truly. You don't, no, seriously, you're not we pushing have. them? Hmm. No, we don't push them to swim. We taught them all to swim. We even volunteer coached at the local uh, municipal league, but uh, we don't, we're not pushing it. Nice. So um, what's, what is your routine, your daily routine, a day in the life? I, you probably oh. don't, I think you said Fair you question. don't really have one. But. So a uh, day in the life, um, you know, uh, I wake up, uh, it's coffee. Um, I'm we'll start so we'll start you know, though. Wake up because you talk about sleep. So how many hours a night? Uh, I aim to get eight hours of sleep a night. Nice. Um, I generally get between six and a half and eight. Um, I'm a heavy coffee drinker. Um, I drink too much of it, but you know, I drink the easy stuff. It's just instant coffee. Yeah. Uh, drives my coffee connoisseur friends crazy, but I got used to it from all the business travel. Uh, then I typically read the news. So I'll read the news or I'm reading a book. Mm -hmm. So I'll spend about 30 minutes reading. Is the book fiction or nonfiction? I read mostly nonfiction. Okay. So I read a lot of histories nice. um, or um, studies. Um, and then uh, I'm catching up on the, any urgent emails, so I'll spend about 90 minutes going through any priority emails or communications that need to get out for the day, stuff that's coming over the prior night or it's been flagged for me that I need to address quickly. And then after that, uh, typically my day is mostly meetings with customers, uh, meetings with prospective customers where the sales team uh, would like me to come spend a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. uh, it's meeting with our existing investors, uh, board members, uh, prospective investors uh, and recruits. So my time is really spent on the finance side, the sales and distribution side, and on the human capital side. And that's most of my day. What about diet? What do you eat? What's your... Lots of plant matter. Really? Okay. Yeah. So like this morning was um, uh, fresh peaches and then um, I, I, I was in a rush this morning. Yeah. Uh, this morning was a protein shake uh, and fresh peaches, but um, Typically, uh, our diet is high on plant matter, high on fish. Mm -hmm. um, our whole family eats a lot of uh, vegetables, a lot of beans, chickpeas, a lot of fresh fruit, and then um, and water. Yeah. Uh, and nothing fancy. It's not expensive. Yeah. And when I'm in a rush, it's a peanut butter sandwich. Yeah. Right. One thing I've I've picked up that you do. It's a really cool tendency. But literally, if we were having this entire conversation and it was over the phone. When I hang up, probably I'm going to give it 30 minutes after we hang up, I'm getting a whole recap and a synopsis of that conversation from you. Super impressive. Is this a habit that you routinely practice and why do you yeah. do that? 
uh, it's a habit I learned. Mm -hmm. I learned from other people because I found it useful and uh, back to the point of listening. Yeah. Right? We all want to get better. We want to learn new, new plays. Right? Yeah. We want new skills. Um, and someone used to do that routinely with me, and I realized how valuable it was, so I just tried to mimic it, yeah. right? just learn. Um, so I do it for two reasons. Um, number one, it helps reinforce, just like writing notes, it helps me reinforce and, and form long-term memories about something that's useful. Uh, number two, it makes, in the act of doing that and writing a note to someone, it makes me think about, well, how can I help? Mm -hmm. It's a tangible way, right? Because the tendency in any relationship and business is to try to be transactional. Yeah. Like I can, I'm going to spend time with you if I can, if I can lever that to the next customer or right. the next introduction, right? And, and that, I don't like that. Yeah. Um, so if you can genuinely help someone, particularly fellow entrepreneurs, as sometimes I'm able to help, you know, what's one way you can tangibly help them? Yeah. And um, I just find if you get it off, if I don't get it out within a couple of hours, I won't get it out. Yeah. So I try to make it a priority to record it, get the, get the email or the note or the letter out or the phone call, the follow up within two hours. Otherwise, it just gets pushed on the queue and doesn't get the retention it deserves. That's awesome. I mean, I've, I've adopted it. I truly have like oh, after good. meetings and just sending team recaps too. Like if I have a meeting with you, I'm going to send this to my executive team if it's relevant, something they need to know about. Plus something you refer back to and say, hey, oh, that, that's what we discussed. So it's a really cool practice and oh, I appreciate you for teaching me that. So indirectly, oh. unknowingly. <laughs> so um, what are some hobbies? What are some things that you do? Yeah. I mean, obviously reading and you have kids. Well, so. I exercise every day back to the routine thing. Yeah. I, uh, I still train uh, four to six times a week. So I'll take a break depending upon the schedule or how things are going uh, midday or end of day uh, to train for an hour or 90 minutes. Um, and for me, that's a hobby too. Yeah. It's not just stress relief, but it's a hobby. Um, above and beyond that, I garden a lot. So a little challenging right now, given the heat and yeah. the, you know, 1200 year drought that we've had, but, um, my, my garden's all dead, uh, except for the high desert plants. But I, I typically spend quite a bit of time, you know, 30 minutes a day, um, transplanting plants or planting new plants or, you know, creating new cuttings for someone else to get their garden started. And it's just a way to talk, think yeah. I hang out with the dog while I'm doing it. Watch some butterflies, some bees, you know, listen to the birds. <laughs> Literally, I will, I will watch bees. Uh, I've been trying to learn about bees lately. Really? There's like five species of bees that come through my garden. So Interesting. Do you wear the sun hat? I, I wear, a, being bald, yeah. I, I wear a big hat. You have to. Yeah, otherwise I look like, uh, you know, like I've got leprosy, yeah. um, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm just, you don't want to sunburn when you're bald. No, you don't. It's just no. peel off. And you, you get like, a lot of attention, unwanted attention. <laughs> exactly. And, it hurts. and your children mock you. Yeah, they do. It yes. hurts. The veins start popping out to try to yeah. heal the, the burnt flesh. It's, it's not fun. Well, it's I, do, I used to have one. I, I had a beehive, though, at one time. I had actually two beehives. And so I had the full Alexander veil that you see, you know, oh, every yeah. time he moves. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I do have one of those, but I don't have the bees anymore. The bees won. <laughs> I lost the bees one and <laughs> oh really oh dude <laughs> I was up one day um, so around here if you're in uh, well it, you've got a, a viewership all over the country but um, here in Dallas we have um, more aggressive bee strains that have migrated up from South America originally from Africa called Africanized bees mm -hmm. which isn't really fair they're just more aggressive bees yeah I mean you can still have a bee beard with Africanized bees if someone knows what they're doing you got to handle them carefully I have had you a ever rescue had a bee hive. Beard? Have you ever had the bee I beard? never did the bee beard. Okay. I, I learned from an old timer, though. Um, you know, he taught me I never wore, I would work them in bare hands, bare arms. You'd only use a vinegar spray on the bees. 
um, and he taught me how to be a beekeeper. Um, but my hives were all rescued hives. And um, they were really aggressive one year, and I think I'd missed a clue or something, and they were no longer mostly Italian honeybees or Russian honeybees. Um, uh, I think they'd gotten a little Africanized. Anyhow, they were super aggressive. And uh, one day I went out there and it just went all wrong. Oh, no. And all of a sudden, you know, they're just, I'm getting peppered by bees, stung left and right. And my neighbor was doing his roof next door. And he was actually an experienced beekeeper. He'd had 200 hives in Florida. And all of a sudden I just heard him like, Chris, <laughs> give up. And he was just started Run. laughing. He was just like, you, you got to stop. <laughs> and I just went inside. I ran inside, you know, because I'm like, ow, ow. And the bees were so aggressive, they just kept hitting the window. Oh, my gosh. And after that, my wife said, that's it, because we just had kids. Like, the bees must go. Yeah, bees are out. Don't sneeze around bees either if you've got a oh. beer, uh, bee gloves on, I guess. So yeah. That's well, interesting. I mean, <laughs> that led me down to a, a side note on Africanized bees. So I was kind of curious, how do you measure the aggressiveness of bees? So it turns out people down in Brazil have measured the aggressiveness of bees, and so some professor got a bunch of poor grad students. Test number one was they would put a, a piece of red leather in front of a beehive. They would slap the beehive, and in a defined period of time, they'd count how many stingers were left in the, 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 the square of red leather. Hmm. Okay, easy one. Test number two, that was a pursuit test, <laughs> and the grad student would have to stand in front of the hive. They'd slap the hive, and the grad student would have to run the opposite direction, and the test would end when the last bee stop pursuing. Oh my God. And they had grad students that had to run over a kilometer in the Brazil heat in a full Alexander Vale and canvas suit before the bees stopped. So well, that's so how they, aggressive, they a suit on it, yeah, that's how aggressive oh Africanized gosh. bees can be. So a, a side trail for your, your listeners, but um, that's awesome. They're otherwise harmless, but yeah. you know, if you run into them, you have to run fast in the other direction if you agitate them. Do your research before you get into beekeeping. Yeah. This is all back to, you know, you got to get your sleep, eat your vegetables, and, and train every day in case you run into Africanized bees. Yeah. That rare case. Run the other direction. Well, um, any, you know, kind of closing things regarding leadership and, and advice you'd give our viewers uh, that are going through maybe the startup phase or just yeah. in general? Um, well, one of the things I found most useful when you're hiring, um, I guess, Getting to leadership, you want to hire people that will take a load off of you as a leader, mm -hmm. okay? Because you are building a community as a leader. Um, you're going to have to delegate. If you don't delegate, you will fail. And so you want to be hiring people that you trust and that will just operate autonomously as much as possible. And to that end, you got to recruit them. Yeah. And recruiting them, you're the number one sales agent. You can't, in my experience, it's not successful if you have someone else try to do that for you. Right. Um, you, you, can't, you can have them involved, but you, you have to be involved. Mm -hmm. And you are the one that closes that, that deal to recruit someone. So that's really key. You've got to recruit people you trust. You have to personally be involved in it. Um, and one of the things above and beyond that you want to look in, in all of your leaders and all of your employees as well uh, at the beginning of startup, is you want curiosity and you want a clear desire to be involved. Mm -hmm. Like there's excitement, um, you know, people that want to be involved and are excited, um, they will find a way forward. Yeah. They may make mistakes in form, but they'll be adaptable. They're gonna overcome challenges. They wanna grab hold of that opportunity with both hands. Hire for that. How do you determine that when you're interviewing them? What's the... There is no easy way. Yeah. There is no easy way. I, there's no clear formula I can give other than you need to spend time talking with people. It's why you have to be involved as, as the CEO at the beginning. 
Um, it's really important you spend time. You're looking for excitement. Mm -hmm. You're looking for alacrity, a cheerful willingness. You're looking for adaptability. Um, you know, indications that you don't have that are people that are very focused on rigid structures. Um, they, you know, they're used to they're used to very specific processes. Mm -hmm. um, if you're in a startup, another, another thing to think about, uh, if you're hiring out of big corporate America, I'd say be very careful, particularly mm -hmm. for companies that are below the Series B stage. Okay. Doesn't mean that people out of corporate America can't do the job, but they are used to managing teams. Mm -hmm. They're used to managing departments and department budgets. They're used to having very clear, defined processes, moving them into a chaotic environment where that stuff for sub-Series B, where those are still being defined oftentimes creates a lot of impedance and mismatch. Yeah. And you end up having a much longer training cycle to, to really get to those people to the point they're fully affected. So, One of the things we'll do in the same regard is, is to your point about finding if someone's adaptable, if they're ambitious, is to actually, as you define the role that you're trying to fill, um, we'll come back and say, now I gotta admit, this is a very challenging, these are the, and, and make it sound, sound almost insurmountable to a degree, and we evaluate that response. So if someone comes at that and like, it's a, it, to, to my mind, is a good gauge, um, not always the best, but a good gauge on how someone responds to that challenge already. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of something that I've adopted. So, but I agree with you. It is about finding those right people that you can lean into, that are getting on the bus with you and going in the right direction. That I would say too, like a challenge of not having to constantly manage managers. If you have the, hire the right people, then you can kind of move in. Mm -hmm. So all that up front is so important. It's hard. It's hard to find good people like that. It is. There's no hard and fast rule that I found to hire for um, build, finding people that really want to be a part of something. I, I've just found if you spend enough time with them, they will self-express yeah. that, hey, I've overcome this obstacle. I've been adaptable in this situation. I'm really interested in what you're doing. People that want to be a part of what you're doing, they have done their homework. They have digested what you do as a company or what you do as a person and they bring it to you unsolicited yeah they sell themselves a little bit That's a good point they want to make them sure you understand they're a fit for it they want that job and they don't want to leave the interview without making clear that you know they want that job and they don't just say it um, they emote it yeah and um, they, they follow up on it uh, they send you the thank you note there's all sorts of little ways they express that and i would just tell you know people that are trying to hire yeah. look for that no, that's huge. That's a that's a great that's great advice, truly. Um, well, man, as always, I can't thank you enough. It's always enlightening to get to talk to you and, and to you know be able to hear some of your wisdom and, and things. You've, you've been through so much, and uh, really, again, blessed to have you on the show. I appreciate you so much, Chris. Thank you so much for coming oh, on. Thank you. All thank right. you very much, Justin. Yep. Hey guys, thanks for joining us on this edition of the Leaders Playbook. Be sure to tune into our next episode where we'll have another amazing guest to come on and teach you all of these tricks and tips about being an amazing leader. Um, also be sure to tune in so that you can get information and find out who the winner of our MyLabs Direct promotional giveaway of an amazing MacBook Air computer will be.